And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on a Thursday morning, where a team I, I've talked about in a sides, little conversations here and there, but they haven't been the centerpiece for a while because they got off to such a good start. They've been the Vegas championship favorites since losing the finals. And you just sort of had this tendency to like, yeah, they've been a little up and down. Blah, 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 blah. Let's, you know, they'll be there when we need to be talk about them. And that's the Boston Celtics. Uh, Brian Scalabrini live from Minneapolis, Minnesota, where the Celtics eked out a kind of ugly win over the Minnesota Timberwolves last night to go to 48 and 22. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm good. And um, what it was a very strange game. Give Celtics credit, though. Uh, typically, when they're not hitting their shots, they, they don't play that hard defensively. This game, they played, you know, pretty, they played hard wire to wire. It just wasn't a pretty offensive night. Yeah, Marcus Smart, who has really struggled since his ankle injury a couple months ago in January, had a couple of Marcus Smart plays late in the game. A, a steal in the post, I think it was against Nas Reed. Yeah. Then it's like a jump ball situation where it was just like Marcus Smart doing Marcus Smart things. Um, look, the Celtics are 48 and 22. They are still number four in offense. And the last time we talked, they had the greatest offense the world had ever, has ever seen. So we'll get to that. You know who's just passed them in the offensive efficiency rating scale? Yeah, Kings. No, Kings are number one by far. Yeah. They, Philly, oh. ju Philly just passed Boston into number into the number three spot. Uh, Boston is also fourth in defense. I believe they're the only team in the top five in both, which is why they've been the Vegas favorites all year long. And uh, tied for first with the Cleveland Cavaliers in total point differential. Scout, before we get onto the Celtics, I just can't, I just can't, the numbers are, have been telling me all year that the Cleveland Cavaliers are a title contender along with Boston, sure. Milwaukee, and Philly. I, I just can't get there. And even like I'm doing this research for the pot, I'm like tied for number one with oh Cleveland. That's right. Cleveland's number one. I, there's just something about their offense and their spacing that I just, I just don't, and, and their inexperience, obviously. I, I just can't, I can't quite get there. Can you get there? Are you like worried about the Cavs? Not you mean worried as in a team that I don't want to face? Like they could beat Boston four times and stuff. They've played Boston really well. They beat yeah. the first two games in, in like crazy games. So they check all the boxes for a championship level team. You know what they don't do, Zach? They don't win close games on the road. There's your problem right there. If they had five more wins, you would co-sign them. I bet I think they're like they're like a poultry. You you got to look at clutch stats on the road or clutch games on the road. They just can't figure it out and get it done, and that's why they're they'll they'll lose a lot of those close games. So I, they had a situation against Philly. They should have won that Philly game. That that at the end of the game, you know, Philly was up and the MB foul, whatever. But that game in particular, they had a good lead. They get away from what kind of got them there. They stop going to, you know, like like a little ball movement, playing through the post. And then all of a sudden, like everything gets hard and they can't go to a level on the road. I just don't think they have enough shooting yet around yeah. the two star guards. And, I, and Mobley is making the leap. It's not a leap. It's more like a, a gradual rising jump on offense. Like he's starting to become a really good scorer and passer. I think the shooting piece will come last. And I, I just feels a little early. But I, again, they could prove me wrong and. The numbers say they can win the whole goddamn thing. Boston, um, our mutual friend Bill Simmons tweeted after the Rockets lost, which I think just that would that was a 
that was a stinger for him because he's had some back and forth with Jalen Green and and some Rockets people. And the Rockets stink. And uh, and they beat the Celtics at home in Houston, rather. Uh, he tweeted that people something about the Celtics 2023 situation is more dire than people realize. Dire was the word that Bill used. And it and Bill knows lots of people within the Celtics, so he knows stuff. He doesn't tweet stuff like that a little bit lightly. Obviously, he, his heart, his heart and soul are invested in the team. So he's going to ride the roller coaster of emotions more than you or I might. Um, but dire, that, that word just jumped out at me. And because I just I have a tendency when these teams with track records go through kind of like eh, they're six and six in their last 12, whatever, to just say mm-hmm. it's fine. Like malaise, some injuries, you know, it's a long season. People are tired. But then you you zoom out and you're like, OK, here here. If you believe it's dire, here are the two reasons you believe it's dire. Number one. Boston is 13 and 10 in their last 23 games, their offense in that stretch ranks i think 17th in the league so the offense is what undid them almost undid them against miami and did undo them against the warriors in the finals along with obviously the warriors being amazing and here it is again sputtering and we can talk about how that sputtering has manifested itself so that's one and number two just more fundamentally milwaukee's like 25 and 2 in its last 27 games philly is surging through a very hard schedule and and threatening the Celtics for the number two seed in the East. The Celtics have a much easier schedule. Philly has a ton of road games left to make up. So Boston is still the favorites for number two. But all of a sudden, they they don't even look like the clear favorites in their conference anymore. That that surrounding environment plus the offense is, I think, where where Dyer is coming from. And then just some weird stuff like Grant Williams minutes. Um, Blake Griffin is now like the backup center. It just feels like there's a little instability. How are you feeling about the team? Well, I, I know like a lot of this kicked off with the 28 point blown lead to Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn. And then they followed that up with the blown lead to, to Knicks and blown lead to Cavs. So we've seen that. And then a lot of people kind of overreact to that type of stuff. Uh, I'm telling you that they got one problem. They just don't play that hard when they're they're comfortable. That's like the issue. They they don't guard at nearly the clip that they used to guard at. They used to be everyone's fighting to be the best defensive player on the team. Like it was a good rivalry. Like Tatum said, I know, like I feel like I'm the best defender on the team. You know, Jalen Brown, I'm the best defender. And Marcus Smart, I'm defensive player of the year. Like it used to be a thing. They used to take pride in guarding the ball. They used to take pride in shutting down, you know, the best players. I I actually believe that there's they have moments of that, but they are far from far from a 48 minute uh, a game team that used to sit down defensively and just really really work on that side. Then the second part is, and it was so funny. Like you must have like a like a big time jinx with your podcast because I went on your podcast and I talked about the Celtics ball movement. And I talked about how they could bend the defense multiple times with multiple guys of driving, kicking. And it's like you and you're to stop that. You have to be so locked into your coverages of appropriate help and when to and when not to. And it was like almost overnight. They got a little lazy offensively as in like, I don't really need to do all that extra stuff. I don't really need to drive the ball two or three times. 
I could just get up and rise up and make this shot, or I could just kind of force a shot over a guy at the rim, and that went away. So those are fundamental things in the NBA you have to do to be great. Now, you go to the Bucks at, you said, 25 and two i'm just making that it's something like that yeah, and whatever okay. it is it's it's crazy yeah, yeah so they they move it they drive and kick and they compromise the defense they share it and they get after it defensively like all of a sudden you see drew holiday picking up full court and it's like wow i can't believe how how he could do this and carry a team offensively so i i really think like people are bringing up a lot of stuff like drama jalen brown's unhappy like everyone brings up the Wait, is that is that being brought up? No, nah, like someone brought that up because he said at the All-Star game, people, I have to make sacrifices. So they spin that into Jalen Brown's making sacrifices and he's not happy. I'm like, that's not true. He loves being in Boston and he said, I have to make sacrifices, which, by the way, so does every other team in the NBA. That you know what Jalen Brown's, good. you know what Jalen Brown's sacrifice has been? And I think it's a real thing. He he did the thing sometime last year where he just sort of nodded his head and said, I'm the number two guy here. Like I'm just that I'm and I'm gonna have to be okay with that. Like this dude is this dude's above me on the totem pole. He's better than me. And I'm okay with that. I will say on Jalen Brown, real fast, as Tatum slumps from the floor, what do you think Tatum is shooting on pull-up threes this year, by the way? Off the dribble threes. Take a guess. Mm, 28. 29 percent uh as he slumps a little bit he's still you know gonna be fourth or fifth in mvp jalen brown is making a little bit of a late season all nba push and that's a big deal if he makes all nba because of the supermax eligibility maybe we can go over it later but if it's also going to depend on like what position he's eligible at so if you go through the all nba guards right and he's been eligible i think at guard in the past i think five guard spots of the six are just locked in in whatever order you want to put them in Steph. I know he's missed 26 games. He's, he's Steph Curry. He's, he's going to make all NBA yeah. SGA Dame Luca and Donovan Mitchell. Dame's a lock. Dude. Dame's averaging no. 32 you, a game. You, man. you forgot. You forgot a lock. I'm sorry. Who did Aaron Fox. Is a lock. He might then. Then that's all six. Then that's all six are done. I don't know if how many games did Damian Lillard miss. Dame has missed, I think, thirteen games. Oh, uh, he's a lock then. Okay, it's he's hard a lock. So hard if, to make and, all. And NBA. by the way, Fox Fox then makes another game winning shot last night. Yeah, he's a lock. He, then that's it. Then they're then the guard spots are done, and the forward conversation, if he's eligible at forward, gets a little interesting. Yeah, because every all the forwards are missing games. All the forwards are hurt. He should make it. Well, if it's it's going to depend on his eligibility because you know it's and and Durant has played forty two games. That's no. If he doesn't play again, all, that's half a season. He can't make all NBA. LeBron is missed, and I think Durant will come back. I think Durant will come back late, late, late in the regular season. He so he might, maybe he gets to forty five. Yeah, those two guys can't make all NBA. LeBron's played forty seven games. That somewhere there's got to be a line where like even LeBron can't make all NBA playing yeah. 47 games. There's, right, yeah. there's a line somewhere. Anyway, we're off track. Yeah, okay. De defense, defense. Yeah, they just don't guard. Like they're don't. just like, they're disconnected into understanding. I think that they're the team that thinks it's a long season and we're just going to flip a switch and we're going to guard. I really so believe that's what they think. So here's what's drives me crazy about analysis at this time of year. 
and I did this with Denver earlier this year. When the good team, when the best teams in the conference, each conference, the number one teams all year have been Boston and Denver. When they slump, this is the half the analysis is well, they're just not playing hard. It's boring. They're not playing harder. And I agree with you. They've made a lot of uncharacteristic errors on defense, and they have all year. Like they've just like even last night against Minnesota. Two guys go with Kyle Anderson. Rudy Gobert gets a dunk. Sure. Uh, Mike Conley gets a wide open three on a split action when Jason Tatum just forgets that he's guarding Mike Conley. Just miscommunications that are not characteristic of them. Even so, they're sixth in defense in that 23-game stretch where they're 13 and 10. So, like, their defense has been fine. Fine. The other thing is, when did – why is it always just effort? Like, maybe – why can't it be, like, something is actually wrong with the team? or or the mental effort required to play the kind of offense that you you're talking about like to yeah. search out the right matchups to keep it moving that takes mental tenacity and effort and if it's not there consistently why isn't that why why is that just something to dismiss as a non-problem that will correct itself when the games matter why have the Celtics earned the right to just be like we'll we'll just get into our habits when it matters, does a fi- does one finals trip and a bunch of deep playoff runs before that have have they earned that? Because the Bucks aren't playing the, the Bucks right now. The Bucks offense, which has been crap all year with Middleton out, is clicking now. The ball movement is clicking, and you mentioned Drew Holiday. I think one of the big benefits of the season for Milwaukee by accident is with Middleton out. Drew Holiday's had to do more and more on ball stuff, and I think he's gotten more comfortable in his pick and roll with Giannis, in his step back three, and all of a sudden he and Middleton are going to be like co-number one ball handlers on the on the plays Giannis doesn't have the ball, and I think that's healthy for them. But like what? I just, like Boston's offense, 17th over 23 games right now, and it just doesn't look good, and we're just going to chalk it all up to like, well, they don't care, and when they care, it'll be fine. I mean, Is- okay, so first of all, <laughs> you got to understand, you talk about Jason Tatum and the pull-up jumpers and pull-up threes at 20. 20- 29, 28%? 29%. So, like, like you're starting out like the original, like Giannis is relentless, relentless. Every possession, he is relentless. He doesn't care. It's going through. He doesn't, when you're skilled like Tatum and Brown, they always have the option of just saying, you know what, let me just pull this jumper. I don't need to be relentless and run old people. Uh oh, are you, are you going, in, are you going to go into the Giannis that has no bag? argument now is this is this no, when you're sk- when no, you're skilled I, when you're skilled no 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 okay. all right just, I'm just checking like yeah yeah no 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 i think it's better to be relentless and just like go 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 attack 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 i think it puts like i don't think people understand the amount of pressure that that guy puts on team defenses so when brooke lopez is wide open for three but when you're doing that over and over again now teams have to adjust you so the Celtics settle, you know, they they because those guys can get a shot off anytime they want. And Jalen Brown shoots a high percentage, you know, he's from, been great. He's shooting from, 58% on twos this year. Yeah, this mid-range has been off the charts and all that. So it's just like it's a different uh offensive profile. So yeah, like the Bucks are gonna get more open shots, you're gonna get like, but the Celtics have like better offensive players outside of outside of uh, you know, like you just line them all up. Like this has more talent. This guy has more talent. This guy's a better decision. I mean, this guy's a better decision. It's just across the board. But when you attack that rim and you're getting to that restricted area and you are punishing people there, it changes things. It makes life easier. 
So I like I don't have an answer for you. I don't know if the Celtics are gonna live in that restricted area. And you know, like without Rob Williams, we don't really have a last line of defense back there. And we're really getting like burned by that when Al Horford is switching out on the perimeter and we're giving up all these points on the on the you know offensive glass, second chance points. So I just think like when you're giving up points in the paint, when you're giving up that restriction area, restricted area, and you're not getting there, it's really hard to win. Did you watch Clippers uh, Warriors last night? I've, I've watched the first half. I'm going to watch the second half after oh, you, you got to watch the second half. Curry goes nuclear and they can't win. Why? Because Zubach kills them on the glass. So we got Steph Curry, like all time great, Mount Rushmore, doing the best you can play, 29. And if you can't rebound, you can't win. They get they lose that game by 10 because they can't rebound. You have it's this game we talk about. Oh, yeah, the skill. This it's a guard driven. It still comes down to restriction area and rebounding the ball. When Rob plays, the Celtics are by far the best defensive rebound percentage team in the NBA. And when he doesn't, we're like 27th. So that's why, like those little things, they become drama and oh, there's dire problems. No. It's defense and rebounding. That's when it all starts. And then we go on the offensive end, it's being relentless. And we talked about that when I was on your podcast last time. The Celtics were relentless at driving, kicking, and attacking. They're not like that anymore. Now, I believe they could flip the switch, but I don't know that for, for certain. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung Smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's macy's.com slash gift finder. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. With a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. When I watch the Celtics, every game I watch, my litmus test is where's the worst perimeter defender on the other team? Who's he on? And do they use that guy in in the possession? And so in Houston, I was like, all right, where's, I mean, I don't mean like, where's Jalen Green? Like Jalen Green, a lot of times was the weakest link on the floor for Houston. Shen Goon didn't play, so they didn't have like the slow-footed center to attack. Last night, it was Mike Conley, just undersized. And in every game I watch, 
there are just too many possessions where they're just letting those guys hang out in the corner on Malcolm Brogdon and Derek White and Marcus Smart. And when they bring those guys into the action, and one of my frustrations with the Boston this season is like they have not used Brogdon as a screener at all. And he's a really good screener. He had a great pick and roll chemistry with Giannis as the screener in Milwaukee. Um, When they get those guys into the action, ball screens, pin downs, off ball stuff, and they get either a switch or a rotation and their best guys get it with an advantage. And then they attack that advantage, like right off the catch. That's the kind of stuff you're talking about. That's when they're really hard to guard. Sometimes you don't even need to give the ball to the guy with the mismatch. They had a possession last night against Minnesota where they did some off ball screening action with Conley, got the Jalen Brown Conley mismatch. The wolves overloaded to stop them from throwing the ball to Jalen Brown. And the Celtics were just like, cool, we don't even need to throw him the ball. Now you've exposed gaps all over the floor, drive, kick, drive, kick. Somebody gets an open three. And when the Celtics are diligent in playing that way, they can win the championship. They have not been diligent playing that way for like two and a half months now. They were not diligent about playing that way against Miami and Golden State. And I think fatigue, both mentally and physically, had something to do with that. You can speak to this more as a player. Like you, you talked about how, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are so good and so skilled that they can just default into like, well, we don't need to do all that stuff. Like I'm Jason Tatum. Sure. It it takes a certain, I mean, I, maybe you can speak to this more than me. I don't know, but you talk to players and coaches, the, the level of mental strain and focus it takes to play that way. 95 possessions a game or 80 half court possessions a game is like a real thing. It's, it's, it's effort. It's draining. But you have to do it. And I worry that it's not just as simple as, well, they don't care. And when they care, they'll do it. Like, it takes real work to do that, right? It does. It does. No, yeah, no you're exactly right. That's not That's not easy. It's like a that's heavy player, right? Yeah, man, I just want to run. We need to run. And you watch a team, they'll run for four minutes. Like, no, no, no. When you watch, like, the all-time great running teams, they're going 48 minutes. They're, they're running on makes. They're running on misses. They're running on free throws, makes free throws, miss free throws. They're running every time. So everybody says that, but they don't do it. The best team, like the Celtics had a stretch. They were really good. But you remember San Antonio the year after they lost to Miami? 2014. You couldn't keep up with them. They never did. Oh, it was stopped. ridiculous. It was ridiculous how good they were. And once in a while, once in a while, Pop will call punch for Tim Duncan. He score, and then they go back to just like the ball flying all over the place. Well, that is a good example of a team going like wire to wire all year, all game, every possession, doing that. I would say when the Celtics are at their best, it's a controlled chaos. It is a driving kick mentality with a little more emphasis to get the ball to Tatum and Brown, like. If you have one and they have one, you probably should one touch it. You probably, even if you feel like you have one, if you know that they also could like play with an emphasis to get those guys to ball. But I don't like the pin down to get Mike Conley and everybody knows it's coming. I think as bright as they are as players, I think the world of these guys from an IQ standpoint, I thought that from the very beginning of the season, I think that now. As good as they are, I think they could play fast. I think they can play random. And I think they can play with an emphasis to get the ball to Tatum. And when Tatum is playing off the ball and he makes two in a row, I don't mind your 28% pull-up three. You know what I mean? Don't search 
before you getting going on that shot, like let's do a little heat check after we got it going because let's be real. Can anybody stop Tatum on a, uh, him driving a closeout? There's not a not a player in the league or a team in the league if he's catching the ball off of a move, off of a compromised defense, could stop that guy. And I'd say the same thing about Jalen Brown. They're fine on the isolation. It makes them special, their, their ability to do that. But what they're really good at is attacking closeouts. And they've always been good at that, yet they go away from that because I think like fatigue has, has settled in. Now, habits or fatigue? Their habits are being built this way. Now, are is it fatigue and they'll snap out of it? Boston Celtic fans hope so, but sometimes habits pull through, and that's uh, that's a little bit what I'm worried about. Yeah, habits is the right word. And by the way, I I think you just absolutely nailed it. I, I you could say this about every team, maybe, maybe not quite every team. I think it's very true of the Celtics. Their offense is at its best when it lives in this world between scripted and improv. And like sometimes it's like scripted could just be out of a timeout. We're going to start in this alignment. Right, we're going to start in this alignment, and this is going to be the first cut. And after that, you guys, you guys just flow. Um, and and they're they, if you overscript it, it doesn't work. If you, but sometimes I feel like they do need a nudge in, like, hey, that guy's on the floor. Like maybe just Marcus, just like set a random flare screen over here to do this or that. But if you overscript it, it doesn't work. You mentioned Rob Williams. Um, that's the other reason to worry about the Celtics, honestly. It's the reason they were searching out centers at the trade deadline. It's the reason they were thinking about giving up a whole lot more for Jakob Pertl than they gave up for Mike Muscala, who's not playing anymore. It's it's because there's a fear internally that Robert, if, if it takes 24 playoff games to win the finals or whatever it ends up taking, there's just a fear that he's inevitably going to play 17 of them and miss seven. And they're a completely different team when he's on the floor. And I'm starting to think, you know, when we talked about their offense earlier in the season, Rob wasn't playing and they were playing five out with Horford at center and just destroying teams with their spacing and their cutting their backdoor cuts. There's just so much space on the floor. Anytime there's a cut, it's a dunk. And I've, I, we talked about like, it's going to be interesting to see how Rob who's hangs in the dunker spot and, yeah. and clutters it up a little bit is going to, is going to fit in. I mean, obviously they're elite regardless, I'm starting to almost think they need him on offense more than they need him on defense because they just have no rim pressure at all when he's not on the floor. And if you look at how their offense has changed in this 23 game stretch, like what are what are they doing worse than they were doing before before when they were number one in offense? The metrics across the board are are almost exactly the same, including the frequency of their shots at the rim, which is very, very low. Two things have changed. They're getting to the line even less. They just never get to the line ever. They're 25th, I think, at free throw rate, 28th in this stretch. And they're mid and they're dead last in mid-range shooting in the last 23 games. So that you can just say, well, that's just kind of random and luck, and it'll it'll correct itself. The more I watch them, the more I'm like, yeah, Rob is an incredible defensive player. Incredible. His shot blocking changes everything, his rebounding. You mentioned. I just feel like they're now lacking force to the point that it's not quite a crisis, but just give me someone who is going north-south at all times. Give me someone who's going to draw fouls, who's going to get offensive rebounds. I really think they need him back kind of ASAP to reinvigorate that part of their offense, almost more than their defense, which sounds a little zany when I say it out loud, but that's kind of how I feel. So the Rob, the Rob thing is even strange for me, and I'm like, 
looking at numbers and stats and everything like that. So go figure this one. And I don't, I don't have an answer for this, to be honest with you. So when Rob and Al play together, they're off the charts, like their net rating and their defensive rating and their offensive rating. It's amazing. But when Rob and Al and the, and the starters from last year play, they're not off the charts. They're actually just like, like negative net rating. I can give you the, I can give you the stats. it, It doesn't make like, it doesn't make sense to me. What, what is the combination that works with Rob Williams? Because I don't, I, I, I want that combination to work, that starting group, because they were awesome last year. But I don't, nothing in my eye has told me that that combination has worked so far. And I know it's like small sample size or anything like that, but Bingo. It, it feels rigid. It feels like it lacks low. I, it just doesn't feel... Like I thought it would, it would be, and I don't. Well, they haven't. Have they it. haven't played. I mean, they haven't developed ah, a rhythm. Come on, they went to the NBA Finals last year. They dominated That's the okay. NBA last year. So, like, there's no carryover. They did. They didn't dominate. The, they didn't dominate the playoffs last year. Agree, agree. Agree. They dominated the regular season last year, but there's no carryover. So here are the numbers: the 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 starting five, Smart. The Jays, yep. Horford, yep. Williams has played yep. only 81 minutes the entire season. I mean, that's yeah. like nothing. You have yeah. garbage time lineups that have almost played I that know. much. They're minus 27 in 81 minutes. The same group with Derek White in Marcus Smart's place. So White, the Jays, Horford, Rob is plus 59 in 67 minutes, plus a point a minute. Now that again, that's nothing. 67 minutes is nothing. And you know, Bill is big on this. They got to bench Marcus Smart late in games for Derek White. I actually think that's an interesting conversation because, you know, when they when they traded for Derek White, I remember thinking and writing and saying that closing five of White, Smart, Tatum, Brown, Rob is going to be incredible. And it didn't end up being a big part of their team because Horford has been so good. Yeah. And Grant was so vital to their playoff run. And by the way, I think they need to start playing Grant more. I know he's dealing with a little elbow thing and his shooting's been off. Philly and Milwaukee are like the teams where they need Grant Williams the most. I know. And Miami, it, Miami too. Like you, you need you're, you're right. Size, size, size. They need size. And then I looked at what is what is like Brogdon, White, Brown, Tatum. What does that look like? Those four. Because you know, Brogdon's been outstanding all year too. They've only played like 66 minutes together the whole season. Those four guys, just the four guys, forget the yeah. five guys. So I agree with you. There's like some lineup tinkering to, to be done. And, you know, maybe the answer ends up being white, smart, Tatum, Brown, Horford, and a little less Rob. But I, I was super intrigued by that. Rob at the five is the only big guy on the floor lineup. And we just haven't seen a lot of that. And like, they have 12 games left. Like the playoffs are here. I, I, I just, the Rob thing is just, it's just they just need him to play because yeah. I don't think I don't think look I picked the Bucks to win the title before the season I picked the Bucks to win the title now I think they're I just am terrified of Giannis and I'm terrified of how they look right now the Celtics are not going to get out of the East without Rob Williams being a big part of the team sure sure I, I I don't I don't so when you when you have a small sample size people use that cliche but what it really means like you have to kind of unfold all those lineups. Who are you playing against? Where are you playing? 
What is your current situation? Are you coming off a back-to-back? Who's coming? Is a guy been out for two weeks and now he's in? And how that, like, there's so many scenarios. That's why you use the term small sample size. But I just, the eye test, when those guys are together, there's like something missing. Those you know, two like, bit, no matter, the, the, just that you're talking about Horford, Rob. No, something's no those not guys right. are amazing together. Oh, no matter, you're, it, you're talking about the full group. Okay. Yeah. It's like, I don't know if it's a shooter or more shooting. Like, and I would be curious if it was like the Jays, Hauser, Robin, and Al. Like, I'd be curious of all the groups with with those two guys, or maybe just one of the Jays. And and I'm not saying to end in a to end a, a game because when you end a game, you have to balance out defensively. You have to think of if you have a Joel Embiid out there, you need a Marcus Smart out there. I know it sounds weird, but you kind of do because. He provides switching. He is, his help is amazing. When to go, when not to go. Like, there's a lot of things that, that play into that. But it's just, I I, I am, the one concern I have with the Celtics, forget the, we, I, I think they're going to play a lot harder. I think they'll play more random. I think they'll play with pace and space. I, I, I believe all that. And I random, think they'll play Random better. is fine as long as the random is, like, aimed in the right places. That's what I think. Yeah. Control, I call it controlled chaos, right? Like, you, like you could play random and screens and th- but the ball has to find Tatum and Brown and then um but but ultimately I I just I I wonder what what the end result is going to be with all these lineups like like do, what do you need out there what kind of shooting you have out there and and, and you and you but I agree with you from the Rob standpoint you got to have Rob Williams out there if you don't have Rob I don't see how you rebound with the Bucks I don't see how you control that restricted area against that team without Rob out there the Bucks are too good right now and and ascending and clicking at the right time and the sixers are ascending and clicking at the right time weirdly it it feels it feels like the sixers putting maxi back in the starting five it feels like now they've settled that question and they're they're kind of figuring out a more holistic identity of what their team is even weirdly while tucker and harris at the 3 and the 4 or the 4 they're really both fours are not giving them very much I mean, Tucker's never going to give you much offense, but Tobias is in a big slump, but there are three guard lineups with like Harden, Maxi, Melton, or, you know, Milton last night off the bench are starting to click too. It just feels like they're, they've figured out some things about who they want to play uh, when in the games, their rotation, both those teams. uh, Look, I was super high on Philly before the season. I had Bill on my podcast preseason. And my, my first big question for him was why can't Philly win? the title this year they have all the ingredients to win the title i still think that you know if harden shows up in the biggest games i th- those two teams are so good that boston needs to be going at full throttle to get out of to get out of the second round i mean if they don't have home court in the second round that could be an issue too i don't I, now i know they i'm have not philly's trying number. to be they have I, philly's number i know i don't, they I don't see philly. it i don't i can't I, I know it could happen. I know it could happen. I know I of get course it. it. I just happen. in my mind when I do the matchup game, I don't see that team beating that team. Well, they have more answers for Harden than anyone in the NBA defensively. They, yeah, it's like a but lot nobody they nobody has any answers for Embiid anymore. Nobody like like Grant might be their best Embiid defender now. Horford's been pretty good too, yeah. but. Those guys, there's no answer now. There's no like, okay, we can just leave Grant Williams on an island with Joel Embiid. No, that's like death no. by dunk. Like it's not going to happen. No, I, I I understand what you're saying, but Philly, 
it's a bad matchup for them. Like Philly well, could beat all the Philly has a better chance, I think, of beating the Bucks than they do with the Celtics. Is it the small guards? Like there's always going to be a place for Tatum and Brown to pick at? Like, is that part of it for you too? I think I think Philly can't compromise the defense of the Celtics enough. They could do it with Embiid. But when guys and Embiid's operation in the top in the high post has been it's, it's you can't it's, it's changed his entire career. Yeah. I mean, his career was already going towards a super first ballot Hall of Fame, yeah. obviously, but yeah. migrating from like the block to the nail has he's Correct. just not there's no answer anymore. No. And peep this like when you watch James Harden, why does he struggle so much with catch and shoot? I don't get it. It's starting to change now. And I, I saw, looked up the I numbers. Saw, it's I, I starting to change. That. I did see that. But don't I think I think Harden's been I had Harden on my all-star team this year. I think Harden now people have now come around like, oh, maybe you should have been more in the all-star conversation. I think he's been yeah. great after like the first 10 games of the season. He's been outstanding. So I, I think the last four weeks, I, it must it must have been brought up to him. Like I think it's been brought up to him like monthly. Well, okay. I don't think I don't think anyone in Houston was like I don't think anyone. I think he could just do whatever he wanted in Houston. Nobody was going to be like, "Hey, James," and be like, "Yo, I'm the franchise." I think. Yeah. I think it's been a regular topic of conversation. Let's put it this way: Now, when I wrote in my ten things column a couple months ago, three months ago, probably now about Harden just refusing to take catch and shoot threes, yeah. I got pinged from a lot of people who have been around Harden in the NBA. Like, dude, it's been driving us crazy for okay. so long, but it's starting to change. Yeah, I did. I did notice like the last three weeks, even. And what he has done is he stepped off the line a little bit. So now he's like has no problem catching shooting from a little bit deeper. But like he pump fakes, like he'll jab. Like MB just got you a wide open shot. Why can't you shoot it? You know, like that's the easiest shot. You make it harder. But but I just don't think it's a great matchup for Philly. Uh, you know, like listen, things change really quickly nowadays. And if Rob Williams doesn't play, it changes everything. And I, I get all that, but. I've seen Philly so many times against the Celtics where I'm thinking this is what's going to happen and they don't get over the hump and I just don't understand it. They don't, it's like they could play good for a quarter, two quarter, a half, whatever, but eventually it's like uh, they're going to lose the lead and that's just what happens. That's, and it's unfortunate because I really like Doc and I like the, I like how Daryl Morey made this team up. Big, strong, physical guy. I I, I like that from, a, from that standpoint. And I think they could beat the Bucks. I know it's crazy. I believe that. But I don't think they could beat the Celtics. So I don't think I'm, that's I'm crazy. not worried about two, three. I just I don't worry about that. I just worry about Milwaukee. I don't think it's crazy to say they can beat the Bucks. Like I just don't. I think they're that talented, and, and it's just big. a matter of Harden showing up in the biggest games more than anything else, and the other teams being awesome. But I, I don't. I don't think that's like a an off the wall. The numbers say it's not. The Phillies a straight up title contender. All right. Well, Boston's got twelve games left. One game. This is the last game on this road trip. You're going to no, Portland. Oh, this is no. it. We Portland, one more. No, Portland, Salt Lake, sack, and then back home. Okay, three more oh, sack. That's going to be fun. Yeah. That's a fun game. Who who knew? All right, Brian Scalabrini just does awesome work all over the place. Most notably as the as the analyst on the Celtics teams with sometimes Mike Gorman, sometimes Sean Grandy, and sometimes Kendrick Perkins. And you're the yeah. play-by-play guy the other night in Houston. Yeah. Uh, jack of all trades. Scal, thank you, sir. You got it. We'll talk later. 
The Low Post fans, listen up. Have you heard you can listen to episodes of this very show ad-free on Amazon Music included with your Prime membership? That's right. All your favorite The Low Post episodes can be heard on Amazon Music ad-free. But that's not all. You can listen to other top podcasts like First Take and Part of the Interruption ad-free as well. They also have favorite shows like The Daily, Part of My Take, and Up First, all without ads. You know what this means, uninterrupted listening, so no more cliffhangers. Amazon Music offers the most ad-free top podcasts, so we know they definitely have something for you. And it's already included in your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free, or go to Amazon.com slash low. That's Amazon.com slash low to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, let's wrap up the week by going out west for the most jumbled conference in recent memory. And I needed someone who could go into fancy databases that I don't know how to use and come out with numbers that show me how unprecedented or is it unprecedented to have a conference where everybody is so close together, particularly 4-12 to 12 or 4-13, to 13, a conference with no dominant team, really a league with no dominant team, at least in terms of net rating and point differential compared to what we usually see. And that is Seattle's finest, Kevin Pelton. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. We got to start with a couple of quick news items. Um, Lonzo Ball, according to Woj, and I think uh, I, I, I think the Bulls as well, is going to need a third knee surgery on his left knee. It is going to be apparently a cartilage replacement surgery that could knock him out for the entirety of next season, um, which is just an absolute gut punch. I mean, look, we can talk about the Bulls and what does this mean for the Bulls, but... I, Lonzo Ball's only 25. Like that, it seems like he's older than that. That surprised me when I read it yesterday. And for any kind of someone who loves fun, selfless, team first basketball, he's always been a guy that you just gravitate to in terms of his style of the play. Style of play. And Kevin, I will, I've told this story before. I will never forget it was November 15th, 2021. Eons ago, it seems, I was at what was then Staples Center, really what's always going to be called Staples Center on the Low Post podcast, for Bulls-Lakers early last season, the first season of this Lonzo Vooch, DeMar, Levine, Quartet. Now, LeBron didn't play. LeBron was out that game. But still, you got AD, you got Russ, you know, it's hype, it's the Lakers. And the Bulls absolutely, like, clowned the Lakers. I was on press row, like two rows up. Staples has the good press seats. And the difference in speed, enthusiasm, joy, like the Bulls were playing one style of basketball. The ball was flying around. Dudes were jacking threes. It was fast. They were hit ahead passes. Boom, boom, three. Boom, boom, three. Rebound, boom, three. The Lakers were like 
walking the ball up, unhappy in molasses. Bulls won by 20, I think. Lonzo had 27 points. He made seven threes. Levine had 26 points. DeMar had 38 on 15 of 23 shooting. And I remember I went out for a beverage with some Bulls people who were at the game that night at the hotel next door. And they were trying to pump the brakes as team people do about, you know, there's a long way to go, blah, blah, blah. But you could tell that they felt, and it was hard to disagree with their feeling, like we we actually might be onto something here. And I was a Bulls pessimist, and they knew that I was a Bulls pessimist, and so I think they enjoyed that aspect of our of our get-together. But, um, look, I, I, I don't think this Bulls team would have amounted to, like, a huge playoff contender had everything clicked right. You know, I, I, I said when they did all this that I would bet against them ever winning more than one playoff series in a season during this sort of whatever era this is of these four guys together. But there's no denying that stylistically they had something and that Lonzo was the guy who connected it all together and they'd be a way better team today instead of this mediocrity that they are with Lonzo and that it's just it's just so sad like there's a chance his career is over i mean we don't know but like there's a chance his career is over at age 25 and that's just for anybody it's just a bummer man i don't know what do you what is there anything else to say? injuries are like there's the takes on injuries are like they suck and it sucks it just sucks they generally are yeah i've been working on going through my old draft database and going through old projections and seeing Lonzo atop his draft class, one that obviously included Jason Tatum, uh, has been really depressing to to see this week for the same reason, you know, you're saying like the guys in that class are just kind of hitting their prime. Even thankfully Markel Fultz, who, you know, is the number one pick in that draft ahead of uh, Lonzo it took a circuitous route to get here, but is finally playing some really good basketball for Orlando. Cir- but you circuitous look at- is we need to think of a more complex shape that goes into <laughs> like the seventh dimension to describe the path that Markel Fultz took to this place. Fair, fair. But like De'Aaron Fox, first time All Star this year, Tatum just reaching his prime, and yeah, for Lonzo to not be able to play at all at this stage of his career is is tremendously disappointing. It hasn't been described this way, but it seems like it's been described as a cartilage transplant. So that's typically what's known as a de novo surgery. And I only know of two NBA players who have had that previously, and it's been a while. Uh, Malcolm Lee, who is kind of long forgotten, had this in like 2013. And then Jason Richardson had it before his comeback with the Sixers at the tail end of his career. So he was able to get back on the court. Malcolm Lee, you know, hasn't been the same player. We also... Like he was, I think, a rookie when he had this. So I don't know that we knew what kind of player he was going to be, but he actually is still playing basketball a decade later professionally. So there, there is some precedent for being able to, you know, kind of play on after this surgery, but it definitely is something that if you get to that point, it, it's kind of a last resort. I don't have anything else to say. It just get well, Lonzo. I miss watching you play. We all miss watching you play. I don't really want to talk about what it means for the Bulls yet. So the season, the Bulls are still. We're not going to talk about the East, but they got they got a season to play. Let's see how the season wraps up for them. The other bit of news yesterday that Woj broke, uh, long rumored. It felt like this rumor popped up every year and accelerated when Michael Jordan sold a minority stake in the Hornets to one of these guys um, last year, I think. But Woj reporting Michael Jordan is in serious talks to sell a majority share of the Hornets. Um, 
to two to two uh, combined two buyers, uh, one of whom Rick Schnall, who's based in New York, uh, is a is a minority owner of the Atlanta Hawks. Um, I think this is a big deal. It's I mean it's Michael Jordan, so it's a big deal, and it's a big deal. Apparently, he's going to retain a minority stake in the team, which I think is really good for the league and really good for him. Michael Jordan should be involved with the NBA. It's a big deal that he should be involved in the NBA. Uh, I think African American ownership is a big deal in the NBA at the highest levels in the front office on coaching staffs, all that. I, I just I, I'm very interested to see where this goes for the Hornets because Stephen A. Smith on his show today, Kevin, I, I don't know if you saw he had he had um a little comment on this and he said um because of who Michael Jordan is, trusting his coworkers and his staff in Charlotte was almost more important to him than hiring, you know, maybe, I don't, I don't exactly know what Stephen A. Smith said off the top of my head, but it was sort of like more important than hiring the very best uh, basketball people from outside wherever they came. And I think that was Stephen A.'s way of saying, this has kind of been a family and friends operation in Charlotte for a long time. And that's not a bad thing. It just is, is what it is. I don't, I, you know, it, it just is. And I, I do know that the Hornets have developed a reputation among coaches and staff who have been in that organization for the last 10 years and have gone elsewhere and come back and gone elsewhere uh, as, as a place that I think needs to kind of step up to the plate financially and in terms of infrastructure compared to other teams, just in terms of facilities, staffing, sports science, just the money that's poured into the team and the infrastructure that's poured into the team. And that was the buzz yesterday. I was at the Nets-Kings game yesterday when this news broke. And everybody was talking about that. There was there are a lot of people at that game who had been with the Hornets before saying, okay, well, let's see sort of what this does to change this franchise that really just, I mean, hasn't won a playoff series in ages and and hasn't drafted particularly well for the last 15 to 20 years. And they are actually, Charlotte's an attractive market. Players like Charlotte. Kemba Walker still lives in Charlotte. Like Charlotte is, it's not a big glamour market. It's never going to compete with those, but it, it's a market that has some appeal too. Yeah, and look, this is a crucial moment for the Hornets as a franchise. Obviously, you've got, we, we just talked about Lonzo, LaMelo Ball, you've got a young all-star uh, who's not even entering his prime yet, and you're about to pair him with some form of a lottery pick because you know the, the Hornets basically can't win their way below fourth going into the lottery. So, you know, those combination of those two guys, some other young talent on the roster, some decisions to make with PJ Washington, what happens with Miles Bridges? Do we ever get re- resolution with you know his situation going forward in the NBA? This is a crucial moment for the Hornets. So, you know, hopefully, uh, if, if there is kind of a change of majority ownership that can all be in place before the start of free agency that's the news oh and kevin herter uh well just reported has avoided uh, his mri's clean he's avoided any serious injury hamstring strain day to day we'll talk about the kings now or later anyway so the west the western conference that did the east last week the west the nuggets number one 47 and 23 snapped their four-game losing streak by beating what's left of the Detroit Pistons in Detroit in a game that was far too close for comfort for like 41 minutes, and then Denver pulled away. Didn't make me feel good about the Denver Nuggets, even when they went up like 15, 16, 17 at the end. Wasn't feeling great about the Nuggets. Didn't didn't feel great. Kings and Grizzlies. Kings 42-27. and 27, Grizzlies 41-27. and 27. That's going to be your two and three seeds. After that, the Suns have 32 losses at number four. 
The Pelicans have 36 losses at number 12. No one in this conference has a higher point differential than Denver's plus 3.9 per game, which is weak sauce for a number one seed in any conference. One team, one in this Western Conference has a winning record against teams above 500. One. That's Denver. Everyone else has a losing record against winning teams. That's stinky. So I asked you before we talk, and I think we can break this conference, what's left of it, into three races. The race for number two, which is a two-team race. The race for number four, which I'm going to characterize as a three-team race. Now, it could become a much bigger team race than that. But for purposes of today, Friday, St. Patrick's Day, March 17th at 12.14 p.m. Eastern Time, sorry, it's going to be a three-team race. And then the race for six, which is just a gigantic mess. Um, But I asked you before this to sort of, hey, I know you know how to use these databases and you can go click, click, click and find stuff out. Like, how, how unusual is this? to have a conference so jumbled in the middle slash bottom middle and so what's the opposite of top heavy? I mean, so, so sort of weak at the top, just in terms of the lack of a dominant team in, in, in point differential. So you take it away. Yeah, it's definitely middle heavy. Uh, so let's start with kind of the, the jumbled nature. Uh, you mentioned five. I, I went with wins rather than losses. Five wins separate fourth and in 12th. That would be the smallest in NBA history through 70 games. There's never been a conference where it was fewer than seven games that differential, seven wins that differential. Smallest in NBA history. Like, hit those words hard. That's ever in the whole which, time. Which, in fairness, there a lot of NBA history, there were not 12 teams in each conference. So I looked at this post-merger for all of this by the time they actually got to that size. The closest those two two spots in the conference have been over a full season 2002 Eastern Conference, the Hornets were the fourth seed with 44 wins. I think the next year was the last time they were. That was their last season in Charlotte, actually, I think. So that, I think, would have been the last time they had that that good a record, basically. Miami finished 11th in the conference with 36 wins that year. Uh, It is the least overall spread in terms of a conference, in terms of just the standard deviation of wins across all 15 teams, or however many there were, since the 1998-99 lockout shortened East, which was famously when the Knicks made the NBA Finals, is the eighth seed. That year, they finished six games back out of 50 in that season behind the top-seeded Heat, which was part of the reason that they were able to make that run. And then the last thing I looked at, you look at this group that's between 33 and 37 wins in the West. There were seven teams in that group. The most we've ever had within four wins of each other in a conference was the 2017-18 Western Conference. A little bit similar to this in terms of the middle heavy portion. There were six teams between 46 wins and 49 wins. The Blazers finished third at 49 and 33. The Nuggets that year had the kind of de facto play in against the Minnesota Timberwolves. Oh, yeah. Missed out on the playoffs. They were 46 and 36. So that was kind of the jumble with third through ninth in the West that year. And intriguingly, both the number three and number four seeds that year got upset in the first round. Portland got swept by New Orleans. Uh, humiliated, humiliated by New Orleans. I, I would say make her missed league over four games by New Orleans. Oh, and boo. Then, <laughs> as, we, as they showed the next year, Oklahoma City lost to Utah in the first round. That was the Carmelo Anthony playoff series. Uh, 
Although the, you know, the big difference between the 2018 West and this year's West is, yeah, there were a lot of teams in the middle. Houston was 16 games up on third. Golden State was nine games up on third. You kind of knew who was going to play each other in what was an epic seven-game conference finals. And that's where it's different than this year. So I guess the last piece of it that you got into there, the, the lack of an elite team in terms of point differential, there are three times since the merger that no team in a conference has had a point differential of even 4.0. The 1977 Eastern Conference, where Philadelphia was tops with 3.9. The 1984 Western Conference, the Lakers were tops at 3.8. Hard to believe a Showtime team would be involved in this like weak number one seed kind of conversation. Right. Yeah, this was kind of the the story of Showtime, although they'd already won two championships previously. And then the 79 West, Phoenix was at 3.7. So not surprisingly, two of these in that immediate post-merger period that was kind of marked by the lack of great teams. So if you look at those three conferences, the the Sixers and Lakers both lost in the finals that year. Uh, the, the Sixers being upset by the Blazers, the Lakers losing one of those Lakers-Celtics matchups. The 79 West actually did produce a champion, in part because there wasn't any really dominant team in the East that year either. It was not Phoenix, though. It was the Seattle Sonics, who were the number one seed and, and went on to beat the, the Bullets in the finals. Sonics, Bullets. Two teams that don't exist anymore. <laughs> in in that form. name. Um I all of that to me lends credence to the idea that yeah this is absolutely a wide open conference. You know all this Hollinger went through all these stats a couple weeks ago in his weekly column, which is must read at the Athletic about how I think it was centered on the Warriors about how rare it is. You know here we are discussing the Warriors and the Clippers as these sort of like well, are juggernauts in waiting, good teams in waiting, assumed contenders at some point. And he made the point of like teams just don't come from six to win the conference from seven to win. It just doesn't happen. And I actually think this is a season where it could happen for all the reasons that we're outlining right now, or at least it's much more likely to happen. That's just common sense. And all of these are small sample sizes, as you put it, like the whole NBA is a small sample. size. it's like 75 years of history, half of which is, you know, not even relevant to how the game is played today and how the number of teams are. So I don't think it would be particularly surprising if something crazy happened in the West. And we're two weeks ago, On this podcast, I said, you know, look, everyone's sort of penciling in Sacramento as this cute, feel-good first-round team that's going to get beat beat then, and but that's fine, you know. First playoffs since whenever sixteen years ended the drought. They won their forty-second game last night. I was at the game. Not a lot of celebration in the Kings locker room for clinching a winning record for the first time in a million years. But I said, like, look, if you look at the seedings right now, you're telling, and they were third at the time. You're telling me like they draw. A Minnesota Memphis path, like Minnesota's sixth, and now now they'd be seventh. Uh, Memphis in the two three, like there's an easy path, not easy, but it's like not unreasonable at all for the set, us to wake up in two months. And be like the Kings are up one zero in the conference finals, like it, that's that. Even if like they're, I can tell you this, they're not scared of any of these teams. They've played the Warriors well, they've played the Clippers well. They they are not like, whoa, if we get in the playoffs and we face those teams. We're frightened of them, but that's it. We'll, we'll talk about that. Um, we'll talk about that later. So I will start this discussion by asking you point blank. Every meeting I had this week in New York, I had a lot of meetings. I asked this question, and it was it was met with 
deep breaths and sighs and pauses like, oh my God, whoa. Based on what we know today, right now, not if everyone's healthy, not if there's an ideal scenario like that, not X, Y, and Z, not if so-and-so passes so-and-so in the standings and gets home court, based on what we know right now, who would you pick to come out of the West and make the finals? So I think to you know everything you just said, I, I think the rule, some of the rules that normally exist don't apply this year because if you're saying that you know, in Hollinger went into this in that column, like this is kind of the usual mark of a team that makes the finals. If nobody qualifies for that and is a contender, you know, as he was talking out there, then kind of everybody's a contender to a degree. Are you saying? Are you say, saying? Are you saying there are no rules? <laughs> just right. Uh, the the other element I would say to your point though is you know with those teams that we kind of think of is you know sleeping giants individually their chances if they're sixth or lower are not that high but if there's three or four of them that have that potential collectively their chances are pretty high so all of that is my long way of saying that I think there's like seven or eight teams that have at least a five percent chance of winning the Western Conference but. Without with your the way you phrased the question, I, I think you have to default to Denver as the number one seed as the single most likely team and the team that has the fewest question marks going into the playoffs. And let's be clear, the way I phrase this question is you have to make some assumptions, right? So like based on what we know today, my best assumptions would be the following. LeBron comes back at some point towards the end of the regular season. Do I know that for sure? No, I don't know what the hell is gonna happen. We'll see. Durant comes back, let's say two, three games he gets in the regular season. It could be more, could be less. Let's just, but in my head, that's what I'm assuming. Wiggins comes back from this this family matter that is very, very serious. Um and and at some point and makes the Warriors whole again. Those would be my built-in assumptions. I have to answer my own question based on all that information, all those assumptions. I think I would pick Phoenix. And I wouldn't feel great about it because obviously no matter when Durant comes back, assuming he does before the end of the season, if he does, they're not going to have a lot of time to play with their key lineups. Um, They are already uh, plus 44 in 62 minutes, which is, do the math, quite good with the big three and eight on the floor altogether, just 62 minutes. They got to figure out who their fifth guy is what their bench rotation is. You can see Monty Williams every game is like, okay, you're going to play in the first half, Jock Landell. Oh, I didn't like that. Bismack, you get the stint in the second half. Okay, TJ Warren, you give it a shot here in the second quarter. Ooh, you still look really injured. Terrence Ross coming down. Oh, you were 0 for 5. Damian Lee, come on. It's just like, okay, like this is the price of a trade like this midseason without an ability to rebuild your bench. But I think this stretch from Denver was more than just something you can wave away with like, ah, just malaise, regular season. They don't care. They're going through the motions. Jokic is playing nine-dimensional chess to lose the MVP on purpose. None of this matters. I think there are real questions about their defense. Jamal Murray's play has been up and down and up and down all season. And their depth just – I had Adam Morris on earlier this week, and I said, who's the second-best bench player on their team? Who's the seventh guy on their team? And he said, Christian Brown who at that point was not even in the rotation and then went in the rotation. So I, I think there are real questions about Denver. They are 30-6 and six at home, which to your point is a big deal. 
Um, I, I would go Phoenix. I don't feel great about it. I picked the Clippers to make the finals before the season. We'll talk about them shortly, but I, I don't, do you worry about how much do you worry about like the Durant continuity factor? The idea that they're just not going to have time to figure out their team. I don't worry that much about the Durant continuity factor. I mean, I think that's kind of the beauty of Durant is you've talked about so many times that he's like the most plug and play superstar in NBA history. And I think we saw that in the three games that he did play with the Suns. Granted that two of them were against pretty weak competition and the third of which Dallas, like that's a team that, you know, has all, all sorts of its problems of its problems of its own that, uh, you know, we'll get into at some point here. So that that's maybe why I'm a little lower. And the other aspect of it is, look, if Kevin Durant were healthy this entire time, yes, they would be building continuity. They would also be gaining wins. And, you know, when when they won that game against Dallas, it seemed like there was a pretty good chance they might be able to move into that third seed in that 2-3 bracket that looks much friendlier right now than, you know, if you're in the 4-5 bracket, you're going to probably have to play another one of these, you know, teams with a lot of postseason track record in the first round. Second round, you're lining up for Denver. And that seems like a much more difficult path. It, I mentioned 2018 is kind of the comparison to the West being this jumbled. The next year, 2019, is probably the better comparison in terms of one half of the bracket had the Rockets, the Warriors. I, I think the Rockets played the Jazz in the first round that year, and the Jazz were really strong in terms of point differential. And then the other side of the bracket had Denver, which was making its first playoff run, had the Blazers coming off of that sweep in the first round. You know, it was the the friendlier side of the bracket, and Portland rode that to the conference finals, whereas Houston, a team that I think, you know, generally we would have said was the stronger of those two teams, lost in the second round because that's when they came up against the Warriors. Yeah, that was the end. That was really the end of the Rockets, more or less. I mean, that was Durant gets hurt at the end of Game 5 in that series in Golden State, and the Rockets have the red carpet laid out in front of them. Like, okay, the year before your team was better. That was the that was a 65-win team. They were up 3-2 against the Warriors in the conference finals in the, in the battle of the juggernauts, and then Chris Paul got hurt and Andre Goddard got hurt. The Rockets missed 9 million threes. They lose the series. Come back next year, not as good. One, You're the fourth seed. Warriors are the one seed, and down goes Durant, and you got a chance. And they just pooped the bed. And the Warriors, Warriors them to death with one Steph Draymond pick and roll after another. Then Chris Paul got traded. And then, of course, my grand conspiracy starts to kick in between the Sixers, the Rockets, and then James Harden and the Nets to defraud the Nets out of their draft picks. And all this stuff happens. And now the Sixers are amazing and they have James Harden. Um, Do I believe in that conspiracy? Maybe 5% of my soul does. Um, Okay. Let's talk about the playoff races then. Uh, I want to start with the race for fourth in the West, which I have deemed, and you may think unfairly so, and if you do, that's fine, uh, a three-team race between Phoenix at 38 and 32, the Clippers at 37 and 33, who have won four in a row, and Russell Westbrook has fit in much better than I anticipated. Would I, would I have done it? No. Do I feel confident in him playing a huge, gigantic role for the Clippers? No. Uh, do does it make me feel better that Ty Lue has kept him on the bench in close in a couple of four, close fourth quarters? Yes, but to his credit, despite the continued turnover issues and no one guarding him from the perimeter, he has pushed the pace. He's played selfless basketball. He is I I I, I shudder to say it, setting some picks. 
picks are the things where you stand in the way of the defender and you try to hit him so someone else can dribble into open space. He's doing that like four times a game, which for him is Wilt Chamberlain scoring 100 points level screening. And he's been playing well, pushing the pace, finding open guys. And then uh, the Warriors at 36 and 34 who, um, you know, whatever. I mean, look, it again, it's just at home. They're amazing. On the road, they are 7-27. and 27. It's just absolutely confounding. Um, they are missing Wiggins. I, I just haven't really enjoyed the Jordan Poole experience at all this season. The number of bizarre turnovers and bad defense is just is crazy. And there's just a lot of uncertainty hovering over their team. The Bob Myers story, Draymond Green's player option, the punch all the way back there. It's like sometimes that seeps into your team. So here's where we are. Phoenix has a, a game up on the Clippers and two games up on the Warriors. Um, they have a pretty tough schedule, including two games against the Nuggets. They do currently and probably will finish with the tiebreakers over both the Clippers and the Warriors, which is why they are large percentage point favorites to cinch this fourth seed up and leave the Clippers and the Warriors trying to just make sure they stay out of the play-in. So I will let you take this wherever you want. Is there one of these three teams that you think is particularly interesting, particularly strong, a paper tiger? Is there a fourth team that should be included here based on your analysis? You go wherever you want with it. But that's the race for four. Well, let's start with the last question because I think not because the wild thing is the Clippers are four and five since the All-Star break. They have not lost ground to the teams behind them in the standings because the Timberwolves are also four and five in that stretch. And Dallas, obviously, you know, losing some games without both Luka and Kyrie lately. I'm glad you said that because every day I hear things like, well, okay, the Lakers at 34 and 36, I mean, they're only whatever games out of fourth and here's the, or sixth or whatever it is. So here's the thing. If the Warriors go 500 the rest of the season, 500, that's it. Like all these teams do. They're 42 and 40. For the Lakers to get to 42 and 40 and tie the Warriors, which people keep writing is like this easy thing, they have to go 8 and 4 in their last 12 games. 8 and 4 for these teams is like being the 73 win Warriors for a month. Like these teams can't go 8 and 4. They just can't do it. So to your point, like that's actually not insignificant amount of ground to make up, which is why I only have three teams in this race for four. Yeah, I mean, you're just running out of time. And then the other aspect of it is, you know, from the Lakers perspective in particular, yeah, okay, maybe you might go eight and four to tie the Warriors. They have gone seven and four in their last 11 games. Is no one else going to go seven and five in this group? Probably someone will in this group. That The number of teams matters in addition to just the number of games back. Those those factors both get, go into your chances of moving up in the standings. But I, I, I agree with you. I think it's pretty much a three-team race at this point. I, I don't know if I have any strong feelings about those three teams. I mean, the other aspect of the West that I've been saying all year is like, if you don't like the standings, wait 15 minutes because... With the team that was hot, you know, one, two or three games in a row one week is going to have that losing streak the next week and they're going to be back where they were in the first place. So, you know, I I mean, could the Clippers or Warriors pass the Suns? Certainly. Yeah. Am I going to bet on either of them to do it? No, not not based on the way that they've played all season. Um, I just I haven't talked to you about these things, so I want your I want your opinion now. Um, what do you how do you think? The Clippers have looked with Russ, Eric Gordon, Mason Plumley. Like, what have been some of your big takeaways so far? 
Yeah, it's been interesting to see Eric Gordon ascend to such a big role the last couple of games. He finished their win on Saturday over the Knicks. As you mentioned, he was out there and not Westbrook and also not Terrence Mann is the the backup point guard. So and then that lineup uh, also he, he ended up playing a crucial role. Uh, the other night because of the fact that Marcus Morris Sr. got ejected, ejected early in that game. So, you know, he, he took on a larger role and he, he gives them shooting, you know, that they that they certainly need and a little bit of strength when you're switching pick rolls. He's come in very valuable for them with Norman Powell out of the lineup, I guess, is whereas he's made the biggest impact. And Plumley, same thing in the games that Zubats missed. You know, those would have been a much bigger struggle for the Clippers, I think, had they not had Plumley in the lineup. Uh, I mean... You know, they still continue to be a team that when they play well, when Kawhi and PG are on the court, you still see the reasons that we were so high on this team. I also picked them to win the West coming into the season uh, that we thought the upside was so high. And then you just see other moments where it's like, can can they figure things out? Can they stay out of their own way? And, you know, that's kind of been the nature of everybody in this group all season, that their their good moments are really good, but their bad moments are really bad. Yeah, I mean, Kawhi has been, for 35 games now, old Kawhi, peak Kawhi on both ends of the floor. And I think I think both the Clippers and the Warriors could still win the title. I mean, could, st- could definitely still win the West. Now, Milwaukee, Boston, Philly, it's a different animal than anything they're going to face in the West. But I think both those teams have that potential. I'm not out on either of them, and I never have been. And... Um, the interesting thing about Plumlee is now that Zubats and Plumlee are both healthy, they're not playing small anymore in recent games. Now, I think they'll go back to that matchup based when it when it's appropriate. But that's been interesting, too, because I thought that is when Russ would be very useful is when they had no center on the floor and they're not playing um, those lineups at all. Uh, by the way, the Clippers and the Suns play on the last game of the season, um, which could be a, a meaningful game. Um, I, I've liked... I, they, they're playing okay. I mean, we'll see. The defense has been so inconsistent for two, three months now that it, it's hard to know what to make of that. But um, I still think both teams are really good. Uh, let's go to the jumbled race. race. The race for... The race for sixth. The race to stay out of the play-in, which has to involve, I think, by default, the Warriors and the Clippers at, at five and six. But then after that, we get Minnesota, they're 500. Dallas, they're 500. No one's talking about the Mavericks because Luka and Kyrie have both been missing games. They're 500. That seems bad. Lakers, 34 and 36, just lost to the Rockets without AD. But as you have noted, have been playing very, very well. They are uh, plus 10 per 100 possessions with Vanderbilt and AD together. And those two with LeBron have only played 48 minutes together. They destroyed people in those 48 minutes. Their new starting five has played only 18 minutes together. That's the LeBron starting five with Russell, Beasley, Vanderbilt, Davis. We'll see if if, um, if they ever get a chance to, to really blend that group together. Thunder, 34 and 36, not going away. And then Utah and New Orleans, both at 33 and 36. And then the Blazers. I'm excluding the Blazers. I'm sorry, Blazers. I have to draw the line somewhere. You are 31 and 38. You've lost four in a row. Not looking good. I'm excluding the 13th place Portland Trailblazers from this uh, from this race. A lot of interesting teams here. Minnesota might get cat back soon. Interestingly, Kevin, they are plus 10 per 100 possessions. Plus 10 with the foursome of Edwards, McDaniels, Gobert, 
and slow-mo on the floor together. And whether it's Conley or Russell departed now, that group has been, do- I mean, dominant might be strong. It's been very, very good. And now they're, they have to re- restart the process of figuring out the twin towers at some point, which is an interesting plot twist. Um, I guess I would start here. Let's just ask the question. Can the Lakers do this? What a remarkable story it would be, Kevin, if everyone spent the first two months of the season laughing at the Lakers, calling for Rob Polinka's head, wondering why are they holding on to these draft picks? They're wasting LeBron's prime, F those picks, this and that. What a story it would be if the Lakers were in the finals. <laughs> Could it happen? I guess I guess what I'm asking you is this, if LeBron comes world. back if LeBron comes back healthy why couldn't it happen? I mean I think the that what we've seen about the Lakers is they're fragile and that's kind of going to be inevitably the case when LeBron James at this age and Anthony Davis are your two star players. You know AD right now uh, is not scheduled to play back-to-backs the rest of the season despite LeBron's absence and that obviously cost them against Houston pretty severely. And, you know, it, it feels like every time people get a little too excited about the Lakers, either they suffer an injury or they lose at home to the Knicks, something happens to remind us that, like, this is still a deeply flawed team, but it is not as deeply flawed as the team at the start of the season. And the trade has worked in exactly, I think, the ways they hoped. D'Angelo Russell still on the heater that he was on his last two months with the Timberwolves. You know, Malik Beasley hasn't necessarily shot it super well, but you have to respect him from three. God bless Malik Beasley. He thinks his whole life is a heater, and I hope he (laughs) never changes. I I also hope that. Vanderbilt, it's wild because, like, he he was kind of getting slagged at the end of his time in Utah that, you know, this is like a fake hustle, try hard kind of guy. And I'm like, I saw him in Minnesota. He was very useful for them last season. Like, that doesn't seem right. Now he's in the honeymoon period. Also, I, I like trying hard. I'd like to right. have guys on my team who try hard. That sounds nice. It's a it's a very weird criticism to me. Like Patrick Beverly gets gets tagged with the same thing. Uh, his 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 teammate last year is almost teammate this year. Uh, he's in the honeymoon period in L.A. and right now can do absolutely no wrong. And I think eventually his value is probably going to settle somewhere between those two spots, probably close to what what it was at the end of his time in Minnesota. Uh, and the just the depth that they've provided now that you've got, you know, Lonnie Walker, the fourth is the swing guy in your rotation. He doesn't need to be in there every night, but when he is in it, he plays well. Uh, Austin Reeves coming off the bench. You know, that's that's actually not bad. Like he's he, been what the role he's he should been be in. He's, sensational. And when um, when Russell was hurt, he was their backup point guard. And he was like, cool, I'll do that. And I'll score a little bit more, too. He's been really, really good. So I think, assuming the Lakers get in, any one playoff series, they have more than a puncher's chance, I think, no matter the matchup, because again, there's no dominant team in this conference. The odds of them putting together three of those series in a row after winning the play-in, I think, is where that fragility comes into play. But there's certainly a world where it happens. Yeah, that's what I've been saying about the puncher's chance thing all year, is there's just a Grand Canyon-sized chasm between... Yeah, they could win a series. They could win any series. Any of these teams, they could beat any of them four times in seven games. Doing that three times is just an entirely different thing than doing it once. And I think they're just less complete than the Warriors, the Clippers, and the Suns. 
uh, above them, even even at full health. But look, the Wolves, who are seventh, the Mavs, who are eighth, and the Lakers, who are ninth, are all hell-bent on getting in. Like, other than they're not going to play Anthony Davis on back-to-backs. All those teams are incentivized because of their age, because of picks out the door, to just go all out to get in the playoffs. They have to try to get in the playoffs. That's not necessarily the case for the Thunder or the Jazz, who are 10th and 11th. Um, But I think both of those teams, you know, look, the Thunder have been sitting SGA on back-to-backs after his his injury, and... That's that's fine. I don't I don't think there's anything like nefarious going on there. I think they should go all in to make the playoffs. I I, I was arguing about this with some agents in the city this week. They're kind of joking about, well, when are the Thunder going to pull the plug? You know they want to get even if it's a one percent chance at Wembanyama or whatever. You know they want to get in that lottery. And I'm like, f that. Get into the playoffs. You have so much young talent. You have Holmgren coming next year. Like get into the play. How fun would it be? And by the way, everything we're saying right now, if you somehow get through the play in. And you're playing Denver or Sacramento in the first round. If it's one-one coming to Oklahoma City, if you steal one game of those first two, that environment is going to be bananas, and it's going to be awesome for those young players. So I say go for it, Oklahoma City, um, which has coalesced around an identity of Shea, Wing, Jalen Williams, Dort, and Giddy as their four kind of core starters, and and sort of a small ball look. Um, let me. Can I ask you about the Pelicans? So last year, Zion's out. They acquire CJ McCollum and Larry Nance. They pushed the Suns really hard in the first round of the playoffs after winning two games to get out of the play-in. And seemed to be a team on an upward trajectory. Like, that was a dangerous team. Without Zion, that was a dangerous team. More or less the same team, and I'm being facetious, and I think you know why, but on paper, the same team, no Zion again. And they just, they've been awful. For months, they've been awful. Their offense has fallen into a graveyard. So why did this roster look so promising last year without Zion? And now without Zion, looks completely dead in the water. What's your take? Yeah, I was glad you asked this question uh, via text this morning because it's something I haven't looked into but have been curious about for the same reasons that you asked it. It's, you know, it felt like they should have been able to hang on. One of the things you didn't mention about the Lakers you know, at the start of the season was, oh my God, you have this pick swap with the Pelicans. You might send Victor Wembanyama to New Orleans. Now it doesn't look like that swap is even going to convey. And by the way, related in this nexus of mediocrity, the Pelicans were close to getting Beasley and Vanderbilt from Utah at the trade deadline, or close-ish. They had a pretty good offer on the table. It was a draft equity-based offer with a pick that maybe was not as good as the Lakers pick that they ended up trading, but pretty close, I think, from what I've heard. Um, but the issue, one of the issues was, if maybe the picks weren't exactly equivalent, but the other issue was Conley and the Jazz's determination to get off of Conley, and could the Pelicans figure that out somehow, and it became a little complicated. But, like, that trade ends up helping the Lakers, helping the Wolves, and the Pelicans don't get involved in it, and now they're falling apart. But go ahead with the pick swap. Did it help the Wolves? I think that's a question we have to ask here, because it would be nice if, the, if Mike Conley what, looked to score a little bit off the pick and roll. If What did Costanza say about lying? Like, it's not a lie if you believe it. If the <laughs> yeah, Wolves yeah. believe it helped them, then maybe, damn it, it helped them. I I understand the reasons for wanting to make that trade. I don't, don't know if it's worked out quite as well they, as they hoped. But yeah, so 
Zion has been out since January 2nd. In that span, the Pelicans have a bottom five offense. They're 26th in offensive rating. You look at last year after the All-Star break when they were making this run to get in and eventually win out of the play-in. They were 10th in offensive rating. And scare the crap out of the Suns. Yep. So a couple of differences digging deeper into kind of the shooting uh, underlying metrics. Last year, they were average during that stretch in terms of attempts in the restricted area this year without Zion there to put pressure on the rim, they are 23rd and that's, you know, kind of a tough way to live. And it it made me think that Jackson Hayes starting at power forward during that stretch was actually kind of an important thing for them because he was that guy who was going to put pressure for the, on the rim in the way that Jonas Valanciunas and also, you know, to a, to a lesser degree, Billy Aaron Gomez, who has gotten most of those backup center minutes over Hayes this season, just don't do. And then the other element of is last year, these were the monsters in the mid-range. They were bringing the mid-range back. You know, they shot 49% on non-paint twos after the All-Star break. That certainly carried over in the Phoenix season. It was CJ and, and Ingram isolating and knocking down pull-up jumpers off the dribble. This year, they're league average in this stretch on non-paint twos, 41%. And if you're going to be as bad a three-point shooting team as they were in both of these stretches, that really isn't a difference. You kind of need those to go in if you're going to make it work. That, that and like you said, they're not pressuring the rim. Their offensive rebounding is falling off. Jonas Valanciunas' minutes are down. Like, I, I, don't, I don't really know if it's just his performance is more or less statistically the same. The whole team just looks a little sludgy to me. Like, they just don't have a lot of punch. You know, they just don't, like, they, they look slow and tired. And I wonder if part of it is just the strain from playing without key players for so long so many guys having to do a little bit more than they're accustomed to and just if you look they're just injured all the time and it's not only Zion like B.I. missed a lot of games and has come back recently I again his numbers look the same he doesn't look the same to me when I watch them play like one out of every four games he'll go for 35 and look amazing he just doesn't look like he's got the same zip and CJ's been playing with a thumb injury on his shooting hand for a while now that's affecting his shooting he's talked about that but like Nance missed three or four games here and there. Valanchunas missed three or four games here and there. Alvarado's out right now. Um, It just feels like too many guys are nicked up and they just, oh, you're out tonight. This guy's good. It's just a, it's just a a mess health wise. And I think there's still hope within the team that Zion will come back at some point this season, but like it's March 17th. It's, it's Mm -hmm. at some point this season, the season's going to be over and they're just in a free fall. And I don't, you know, we'll see, you know, if if they can if they can get out of it. They have an easy schedule, which is which is one one edge that they have. But you know, competition is pretty tough. It's just like I don't know. We we didn't really talk about Minnesota, Dallas, Oklahoma City. And give me give me something on one of these teams that you wanted to get to. If there's if there's anything. I mean, Oklahoma City. You mentioned it in terms of them having a chance for the same reasons that all these other teams do if they make it out of the play in. They're fifth in the West in point differential right now. Like, like this is a legitimately competitive team, which I think is, again, all the more reason that, like, you don't need to be that worried about the slim outside chance of moving up into the top four. You know, it, it's a nice consolation prize if you don't make it. But I, I agree with you. Let's let's go for it and see what these guys can do and give them. I mean, I, I do think, like, what we've seen from New Orleans kind of cuts against the, like, oh, the value of playing in the playoffs and, you know, your young guys get that experience. 
hasn't really helped the Pelicans this year, and I've looked at it in the past and found there's not really any there's not really any difference going forward. The the making the lottery is like the the thirteenth team going into the lottery doesn't really change your life long term. The making the playoffs doesn't it, it kind of doesn't matter, and if it doesn't matter, then you may as well try. Yeah, it matters for fun. Like right. one of those things is more fun. The other one is like, ooh, the lottery's here. And with the 13th pick, the envelope, oh, it's us. Okay, lottery's <laughs> over. Like, it's not so fun anymore. Playoffs is playoffs is, is fun. Just And the dumbest possible way to end, it's not actually that dumb, but like the most sort of surface level analysis of playoff series, if the Thunder somehow play the Kings, if the Thunder somehow play the Grizzlies, and I'll stop there, who has the best player in the series? Yeah, I mean, I, I would certainly would take Shea over De'Aaron Fox. He's he's probably he's played better than John Morant this season. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's not saying. a lot of guys in the league who have played better than Shea has this season. I, I don't, I'm not sure I want anyone taking the last shot of a game over De'Aaron Fox. I mean, I, I'm not even sure I want anyone taking the, like, the shot that my life depends on this season more than De'Aaron Fox. I talked with him a little bit after the Nets game last night about the it's effing ni- I'm effing nice thing that he said after the Bulls shot. And he just talked about, like, he told me it was my way of saying, like, the team kind of gets gets out of my way in those situations. And it was kind of my way of saying, like, his quote was like, yo, I'm going to deliver. I'm going to deliver. And I was like, man, you've been delivering delivering all year. And that, let's do quickly two versus three. The, the numbers still say it's like a 50-50 race between the Kings and the Grizzlies. Um I think partly because the Grizzlies have the easiest remaining schedule in the league. They play the Rockets twice, the Magic, the Thunder. Um, the Kings have the tiebreaker. The Kings are just playing better. The Grizzlies just the, – the Adams-Clark double whammy. I mean, for the Jaws stuff, you know, we should actually mention that Jaws is going to come back pretty soon, probably next week after meeting with Adam Silver in New York next week. All you can say is hopefully he's doing well and is ready to play. The teams are welcoming him back, and that's great. Uh, but the Adams Clark double whammy for Memphis is just enormous, and just it, it just tears away. Now Adams may come back at some point. He was going to miss a month, which would take him right to the end of the season. It just tears away at the fabric of what their team is in terms of bully ball. I looked at the stats with Adams on the floor. Their offensive rebounding rate is like thirty-seven percent. They rebound like almost forty percent of their own misses, which is basically like that's the greatest offensive rebounding team ever in modern history, anyway. And without him, it falls to 27%, which is just kind of like normal NBA team. Um, and you know, we talked about SAC and, and the pathway they have um, to, to playoff success. It, we'll see. Um, they certainly are the more stable team. I'll tell you, though, the Kings... They're going to play their way in the playoffs. Like this whole thing about the, the game slows down and this and that, they are not going to slow down. Like they're going to run. They're going to run their stuff. They're going to run after makes. They're going to have Sabonis run it up the floor, Fox run it up the floor. And they are hard to play against. Like they're a little, they're a little small, which I think if you talk to their coaches is one reason they think their defense just hasn't kicked into gear and why teams continue to shoot above expectations against them is that they're just a little small, a little undersized, probably getting a little unlucky too. Um, but they're gonna the way they play is hard for teams to play against, both in transition and the half court. And I don't think there's going to be this sort of like shell shock, oh, wow, the playoffs are different than the regular season. I think they're just going to play their way, and they're good. They're just like a legit good team. 
Yeah, I mean, everyone keeps waiting for them to come back to the path and back, and it keeps not happening. And instead, they've been the team that has played, you know, the best probably in the Western Conference, clearly the best in the Western Conference since the All-Star break. I mean, they're they're two and a half games ahead of anyone else in the West with the Lakers as number two since the All-Star break. So this is exciting stuff. I mean, the one thing that I think has been the biggest concern for me about the Kings is like how much of this is just their health that they have enjoyed unusual health this season. And so the fact that Herter is not going to be sidelined in an extended period of time is good news. Uh, that that's probably the position where they're best, you know, equipped to handle a short-term absence because Malik Monk has quietly been awesome this year, uh, deserves, I think, some consideration for the sixth man award. And then they've got Terrence Davis, who's been out of the rotation, but has played pretty well when he has played this season and can step into a larger role. So, you know, I don't think that's going to slow them down too much. Well, okay, so connected to the health thing, they have a very stable rotation. Like, it's it's written in stone almost every night. Yeah, lately it's it's um, Kessler Edwards instead of Terrence Davis. But it's like, it's Fox will play with the bench and Chemezi Metu, and then Sabonis will play with the rest of the bench and Davion Mitchell. So Sabonis and Mitchell are attached together. Fox and Metu are attached together. They stagger Fox and Sabonis. And... I just, I just wonder, it, it's not so much the health thing because that applies to every team. Like, oh, if so-and-so gets injured, they're screwed. Yeah, no kidding. I don't, it, I don't know if they have, like, multiple looks to them, like multiple styles. Like, at some point in the playoffs, teams are going to take away your A game and force you to pivot over here to your B and your C game. And that's where I like the fact that the Celtics have a Robert Williams a third look and a Horford at center look. The Bucks have a Giannis at center look. Oh, uh, Giannis handling the ball look. A Giannis's pick and roll screener look. Now, and you can say the Kings. Yeah, they can go ISO with Fox. I think that gets harder in the playoffs. They'll put bigger defenders on him. I don't know if they have enough stylistic kind of like variety to them, but what they do is really, really powerful. Yeah, I think offensively they can play different styles in terms of how Sabonis centric are they. Or are they going to be more, you know, kind of pick and roll or isolation with Fox centric? Uh, the other thing I think that's going to matter for them a lot, you mentioned there being small, is matchups. Like if they draw kind of the more physical Western Conference forwards, if it's, you know, it's seven games of Kawhi isolations, like that's that's a lot to ask of Keegan Murray and Harrison Barnes to defend those. Uh, so I, I think a team that is less dependent on kind of physical combo forward play is going to be a better matchup for them for the in the first round. I might rather play the Warriors from that standpoint, you know, even as as, as dangerous as they are. And I, I don't know what the f- crowd would look like if it's a Warriors Kings playoff matchup, which I'm pretty sure has never happened. Like I'm not I'm not even sure they've ever made the playoffs in the same year, have they? It's a great it's a great question. I, Vivek Ranadive might part of his soul might be torn <laughs> in that playoff series, considering he was a I, minority owner for the I think it, I think it's the opposite. I think it's like You think uh, he wants to beat him worse? Yeah, I think it's like going against West Ham now in Ted Lasso. Well, I, I'm not, I haven't watched Ted Lasso. There's only one episode out so far? Only only one, yes. I haven't watched it yet. It's like how That's Joe, Lacob, spoiler. Joe Lacob wanted to like destroy the Celtics. It was personal, and it was, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was more competitive for him. All right, Kevin Pelton, you have a mailbag coming this week? What do we got? Don't have a mailbag scheduled this weekend. with Tournament. The it's tournament, tournament time. What am I talking about? Hopefully we'll return next weekend as we get into week two. Your analysis is absolutely invaluable. You're the best at what you do. Um, it's a thrill to have you come on. And 
educate us here on the low post and uh how are the kraken playing are the kraken living up to expectations for you out there uh they snapped a three-game losing streak last night they've got a good chance uh that they're you know on path for the first playoff appearance in franchise history so uh not going to take nearly as long as it did for say the mariners which was like 18 years between inception and the playoffs year two would be pretty good for the kraken uh kevin pelton thank you sir i'll talk to you soon